Who is wise? The one who learns from others. Welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. This is a podcast where long-form conversation allows us to connect with those who inspire us beyond small talk and social media posts we're bombarded with on a daily basis. Join me on a journey where I speak to people from all backgrounds with different perspectives, each sharing their stories, struggles, and successes. Be a part of a community where you connect to something greater than yourself. I'm your host, Karen Corian, and welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. In this week's episode, I interview Sherry Mandel. Sherry is an author, speaker, pastoral counselor, and co-founder of the Kobe Mandel Foundation. When Sherry lost her son to a terrorist attack 20 years ago, her world was dark and grim. Today, she shows us how her grieving went from a dark cave to a bird's nest, as she puts it. While speaking about Kobe, was an opportunity to share a story. It was actually writing that helped Sherry cope with loss. Her first book, The Blessing of a Broken Heart, taught her the power of narrative and how it forces us to find meaning in our lives. This show is not only about grief and how to comfort people who are grieving, but it's about the power of community and that hope is always an option. This is an important conversation you don't want to miss. Please share with anyone you think who could benefit from this conversation. And without further ado, I would love to introduce my next guest, Sherry Mandel. Hi, everybody. I am here today with Sherry Mandel. Sherry Mandel is an Israeli-American author, a mother, and an activist. Today, she's here to share her story and to help others who might be going through something similar or anything else. So Sherry, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm truly mesmerized by your strength and your resilience. You have three adult books and two children's books out. And you're currently a speaker and the co-founder of the Kobe Mandel Foundation. Can you please tell the audience how you and your husband started the Kobe Mandel Foundation? Okay, so my son Kobe, in 2001, we were new immigrants to Israel. And he was, we'd been, we made Aliyah in 1996. So he was in seventh grade, no, eighth grade. And he and his friend, Yosef Ishran, they cut school and they went hiking. We live right near a beautiful canyon, the Awadi, that you can walk all the way actually to the Dead Sea. And that was Kobe's dream. But um, they cut school and they were beaten to death by Palestinian terrorists. So... Kobe was 13, Yosef was 14. Um, Kobe was my oldest son, my oldest child. Um, It was 20 years ago. So actually this year will be 21 years. So he he would be turning 35 now. Um, We had three other kids younger. And of course it's not something you recover from actually. Yeah, something you live with. 
but um, actually my kids got invited to a summer camp in America that summer, Camp Mosheba, and they paid for them and they paid for all of us to go to America. And it was a really wonderful camp, but my kids didn't fit in because they were going through something so devastating. And my husband and I wanted to do something to honor Kobe and to, we wanted everybody to know who he was. And we felt like we couldn't, you know, he, he was dead, but his body was dead, but we, we wanted to keep his spirit alive. And we wanted to do something that he would have liked. And he was a kid and he loved having fun and he was very good in sports. And he was actually a very kind person. So we got the idea to do a camp for bereaved children. And we started Camp Kobe in 2002. That first summer, we had 100 kids. Nobody had ever heard of Camp Kobe. Also camping in, in Israel, there were very few camps. There was the Neakiva camp that was like a two-day camp. So we got the idea to do a camp. And by 2003, it was the middle of the Intifada. And we had 600 kids at the camp. Every one of those kids had had a, their mother or father or sister or brother were murdered by terrorists. So it, it's been quite a project. We've been doing the camp now for 20 years. We, we missed one summer because of the COVID, but we did have camp this summer. And now the camp is not just for terror victims, it's for kids who's young children who have lost family members to, to any tragedy. I've heard the term that grief never goes away. You never ever stop grieving. But can you, can you tell me how you originally perhaps processed the news and grieved in the beginning versus how you're grieving now? I'll talk about now. Last year we did, uh, it was 20 years and I decided that we had to do something in our town, in, in our yeshuv for Kobe and Yosef. And so we did this big memorial project where, first of all, I had a friend wrote a song and we made a video and you can all see it on YouTube. Her, um, just look up video of Kobe Mandel. It was, um, <clears throat> it's a song for Levy. So we did, we did that song, a video. Then we had an event in the Wadi in the canyon where we had hikes and we actually hiked to where Kobe and Yosef were killed. And then we had speeches and we had um, people you know, making pizza and it was just like this all morning event. And then we also did an educational event for schools where we talked about what it means to remember. And it was also based on Yom Hasikaron Memorial Day because Obi's and Yosef's Yurtzeit is about a week after Yom Hasikaron Memorial Day. So after that, I, in fact, during my speech, I said, because Kobe's friend came to this event in the Wadi and now, they're all parents, you know, they have kids and they're working. I mean, they're full-fledged adults. They're getting gray in their hair. 
some of them. And I said to them, listen, I'm finished doing <laughs> memorials for Kobe. If you want to do, and Yosef, if you want to do something, you guys do it, but, but I, I can't do anymore. So I guess I feel that after 20 years, I don't have the need to memorialize Kobe or to make sure everybody knows about him. And also my grief, it's still there. But in the beginning, my friend said to me, she was my friend and my grief counselor. She said, well, always, it's always in your pocket. You know, it's always there. And something can sort of inflame it. But for the most part, I tried to leave it alone. And of course, there are always people who come, like they're kind of, you know, they set up almost a minefield for you. But, you know, and whereas in the beginning, I couldn't stop talking about Kobe. That was all I did. And also I spoke all over the world because I wanted everybody to know about Kobe and his story. Do you feel like doing that in the beginning, um, talking about him and sharing his, his story with others? Do you think that helped you and your family process it? My real processing, or, but I don't really like the word processing because yeah. that's something, you know, you, you go through a process, you go through a process, but no, my, my, ther my best therapy is um, writing. So it, I wasn't really speaking for my, because it was good for me. It was more that I had to make, I, I, it was a mission. It wasn't my natural state go speak around the world yeah so how did writing help you cope with the tragedy well first of all I'm a writer so yes. when you're a writer it's what you do so it's like I had tools to use to express what I was going through what I was feeling what my family was going through and then I wrote a book um, called The Blessing of a Broken Heart. Mm -hmm. And through writing that book, first of all, narrative in a way <clears throat> forces you to find meaning. And I found a lot of meaning that first year because I felt like God was sending me kind of um, clues. I felt, like, I felt like I was a spiritual detective, really. And that I, I had to write about what was happening. But because I wrote the book in, I think it was 49 little chapters, and then I had to arrange them or organize them. And I didn't really know what the organization was going to be. And then I went to a shiur given by Aviva Zornberg, who is a wonderful Torah teacher in Jerusalem. And she talked about bird's nests. And I realized that I could use the bird's nest as the second part of my book. So part one was the cave. Kobe and Yosef were killed in a cave. And the cave is a place of utter darkness, especially Kobe and Yosef, we thought they went to something called the Haritun Cave, which is in the Wadi, which is one of the largest caves in the Mideast. And really when you go in there, it's so dark. If you don't have a candle, you, there are over 70 rooms. If you don't have a candle, you can't get out. And Yosef, they were killed in a smaller cave that was nearby. But I started with the image of the cave, which is dark 
and closed. And then I had a lot of episodes with birds that first year. And if you talk to bereaved people, a lot of them have um, stories with birds or butterflies or crickets. Anyway, I had all these experiences with birds and so, and birds nests. So I realized that the second part of the book would be the bird's nest. And the bird's nest is open and light in a place of birth. So when I found the organization, when I found the structure for the book, in a way, it also helped me move more toward the light. So I know you, because you're a creative writer and it comes naturally to you, writing about it helped you go through your grief, right? But how did your family cope with the death of Kobe? How did they deal with so, it? My family, well, first of all, my husband, Seth, he was very busy getting the um, Kobe Mandel Foundation going. So he did a lot of speaking and traveling and organizing. And because we had like a huge project right from the beginning. So he was very busy with that. And my children were young, you know, so they they went to camp. But part of the reason we started the camp was because we saw how hard it is for children to deal <clears throat> or to cope. Yeah. So, but that that's why we started the camp. So we have, you know, we work with hundreds of children who are experiencing loss. And part, part of what we do is to, or part of what happens naturally is that they find kids understand that they can still be happy, even if they've suffered a loss, because kids feel very guilty. They're happy after somebody has died in their family, or especially been murdered in their family. So it's not that we normalize it, but it becomes a place where they can kind of reveal who they are because regular kids don't understand and even teachers don't understand. Nobody who has not been through this, well, not nobody. A lot of people, of course, everybody's afraid of death. So it's very hard to speak about, about it and to be able to you know, have a conversation with the child. But when children feel safe, they will talk, they will open up because they really need to. And what we found is lots of times kids are the silent victims in families of trauma and tragedy. Kids suffer because also you can't tell because lots of times kids, they're still playing. It seems like they're having fun, but they can feel very guilty and feel very alienated. Sherry, can you tell me as a pastoral counselor, what are some ways that you comfort bereaved people? I wrote a whole book about it. Yeah. It's called Reaching for Comfort. I mean, the main thing I think I learned as a pastoral counselor is that it's okay to be quiet. Because, first of all, I had an advantage. I worked in Israel. My, my Hebrew was really not so good then. So it was hard for me to speak. And in a way, it became an advantage. Because when you're silent, and People feel more comfortable and to fill in the gaps. And also, 
Another important thing is not to give advice. One thing that I was taught that I don't agree with was that you weren't supposed to bring your own experience. You weren't supposed to talk about your own experience. And sometimes I did, like sometimes it just slipped in. And I, and I think also the fact that I felt because of my training, I had to sort of hide my experience, that that wasn't so healthy. I don't think it was healthy for me. And I don't think it was healthy for the people I was counseling. I understand why they said that, because I don't want the pastoral counselor to come in and say, oh, listen to my story and take right. over the conversation. But on right. the other hand, sometimes people find it very comforting to know that you, you know, the person talking to them has like walked the walk, you know, that yeah, they understand they, you. And also they have the experience. They they know what it is. So uh, another thing I learned as a pastoral counselor was that sometimes the way you listen creates what the person can say. Like we we think that conversation creates listening, but sometimes listening creates conversation. I love that. So that was something that... I learned. I'm learning a lot from you because I feel sometimes when we visit people, we pay a shiva call, we, people get so uncomfortable and they want to fill in the gaps. They want to make a conversation. So the person who's grieving, who's mourning, doesn't all of a sudden have a crying attack or doesn't feel awkward or uncomfortable. So we try to bring something up to fill in the silence and you're, you're Dafka telling us the opposite. You're saying silence helps, don't give advice and listening creates conversation just by listening to them and being silent, you're giving them a chance to speak so you can listen to them. So I love what you said. And it's very interesting that you, you mentioned that bringing up your own experience actually helped when I also see it all over the internet. When someone is grieving, don't make it about you. Don't bring up your own experience. Like they don't wanna hear about what you went through. You're just gonna be adding to their grief, but you brought a different perspective into this. So that's very interesting. Yeah, I had one mother come to me and it was somebody I, I knew, um, not that well. And I knew that her brother had died in the army. Um, and she came to me and she said to me that I didn't know her whole story, but she said that her mother was a Holocaust survivor and she, her whole family had been killed in the Holocaust. She came to Israel by herself and met a husband, you know, met her husband and had children. And then her son died as a soldier. And this was the sister who was speaking to me, looked at me and she said, my mother had many blessings in her life. And you are gonna have many blessings too. And when she told me that, I felt like, like she was giving me some kind of prophecy that I would, that not only would we survive, but we would find blessings. It was really right. And she was speaking from her mother's experience. So that's why I say sometimes, not to give the whole story, but there's something that's going to make a difference to somebody and you 
have that information because of what you've been through, then I, I think it's okay to share it. Beautiful. Um, also, the, the yeah. other thing I want to say is that, you know, it's okay to cry. Yeah. Like if there's somebody crying in a shiva, like let them cry. I, I found when I wanted to cry and people were hugging me, I, I hated it. Or, you know, or like, like let me cry because whenever they tried to hug me, I felt like they were trying actually to, to stop it. They were actually saying enough. You know, they didn't mean it, that they were saying that, but that was, that was the, um, that was what happened. So I think, like, I think people have a very um, skew, uh, uh, an incorrect um, conception of, of what strength is. Because everybody will say you be strong, be strong. Yeah. But you're not going to be strong if you're not weak, if you can't show your weakness. Like you, and, and crying isn't weakness, crying is feeling. But, you know, my friend Shira, who's a grief counselor, she, she said to me that I should time myself with crying, uh, you know, after a while. Yeah. Because so that my children, because my kids were little, so that I didn't overwhelm them. And so I would have them time me. You know, it'd be a, at first it was a minute, then it would be like 40 seconds, 15 seconds. And it became a kind of game. And we would laugh about it. I think it was a very important lesson because it showed them that yes, it's okay to cry. It's not gonna destroy us. It's not gonna overwhelm us. It's not gonna take over our world, but we have suffered something so profound that the only response to this right now is to cry. And it can in a way make you quote unquote stronger by crying. Because people yeah, think that when someone's not crying and they're just putting on a positive face to the world, that's defined as strength. Right. In a way. Like, oh, they're yeah. good now. You know, I, I, one of the things that really bothers me is when other people are trying to like downplay someone else's grief, you know, like, let's say somebody, I don't know, lost a parent or something. And then a couple of weeks later, they're like, oh, she's fine. She's great. Like she's doing her thing. She moved on. And I'm like, what, what the heck? Like, why are you speaking on behalf of this person? First of all, second of all, just because someone is putting their best face forward or doing what they have to be doing, it doesn't mean that they moved on. I don't know that I, I always had a hard time with that. Yeah, I, I say you don't move on, you, you move with. You move with. You move with the person. No, because people are terrified of grief. Yes. Of course, it's very, you know, it, it's the ultimate truth is death and life and death. I mean, you can't do anything when somebody dies. Like after Kobe was murdered, I wanted to fix things, you know, I wanted some solution. I wanted, but there's no, there's nothing. There's no answer. You can't retrieve them from the, the next world. So you're, you're left to grapple with all kinds of, not just psychological issues, but spiritual issues. Yeah. 
which um, reminds me of a question I had for you. Is there a wrong way to grieve? Oh, I don't know if there's a wrong way to grieve, but I, I do know that there are people, a lot of um, people in mental hospitals are there because of unprocessed grief. Mm -hmm. so, Can you explain that a little bit? I, I think that if, if you're not given the opportunity to tell your story or to share your story, and to share your pain lots of times, not always, but for some people, especially if they're vulnerable already, then that pain can will come and attack them when they're not ready for it. You know, when and and that kind of pain can be so shattering that it can shatter your, your mental health. So there was a psychiatrist that we worked with. He, he told us that 20% of all hospitalizations in mental hospitals were because of un, like unresolved grief. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. It's a very important point to make. Um, is there, in your work as a pastoral counselor, is there some types of grief that are harder than others with people? The grief that's harder? Yeah. Um, you mean because of what the person went? Yeah, I think suicide. I think suicide mm. is um, harder because often, not always, not always. Sometimes there's a lot of guilt around it. On the other hand, I know mothers of whose whose children have killed themselves, who have less guilt, and I wouldn't say less pain, but they know that their child was suffering so badly in this world because of their mental health issues that there's some kind of release after the death and relief for the child. Yeah, yeah. Um, so back to the conversation we were having about other people helping the person who's grieving. Um, how, besides listening and silence, what about like months or years later after someone is grieving, how can other people around the person help the person who's grieving? Yeah, first of all, it's not just listening and being, being present. It's also, you know, like bringing them food and mm -hmm. taking care of their kids and sending them gifts and things like that. I think it's really important. I mean, we were very fortunate in the fact that our community kept taking care of us. Yeah. So like the first year there was a memorial service and my friends made us, you know, food for Shabbos. And people, just that people remember. I think the, the main thing is for people to remember. And even like just to bring flowers or a plant or something on the day of the York site, just to say that we, we remember that this has, this is important to us. Yes. 
So let's go more towards the bird's nest that you were talking about, finding the light. You wrote a book about resilience. You speak a lot about resilience. Can you tell us the steps to resilience? Um, first of all, are people born with it? How do you maintain resilience? Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, there are people who are born more resilient, that's for sure. Okay. It's just, you know, in your constitution, but I'm, I'm not resilient. I was not born resilient. And okay, so tell I us. Um, and I, I wrote the book because I'm not resilient, you know, so I was trying to understand it, resilience. And also I was trying to understand resilience in a Jewish context, because usually people talk about resilience as going back to who you were, like you know, the way you describe people talking about your friends, like, oh, she's back at work, she's fine. Yeah. And the way that I think about resilience is that you don't go back to who you were because you have to become bigger than you were. Like, I mean, personally, I had to become bigger <laughs> physically. I mean, just to be able to hold everything I had to hold and also I we received a lot. We received a lot of kindness and a lot of invitations and people, as, you know, invited us to speak all over the world. And we were in touch with people from all over the world. So that it's like, you know, in Judaism, we talk about the plea, the vessel. And when your vessel breaks, you can't just recreate that vessel. You have to make a bigger one. So for, for me, resilience is about becoming and becoming greater. And then I talk, at, in the book, I talk about seven steps. And they all start with the letter C. But um, one of the most important steps is community. Because at least it was for me that I rece we received so much that then we had a lot to give. And that's how, like, for example, we started doing, through the foundation, we started doing women's healing retreats. And it, we used the people, my friends, who were also professionals, who helped me in, in my, in Tekoa, in my town. So my friend Shira did massage, and my friend Valerie was the program director, and Shulami did EMDR, trauma technique. And we started these retreats in, in, um, May of 2002, and we've been doing them ever since. So we've helped, you know, probably a thousand women in Israel, a thousand bereaved widow, widows, or, um, bereaved mothers or widows. We have two retreats coming up this month. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's Yashar Koach. It's truly beautiful. Uh, I couldn't help but get a little bit emotional about you talking about the community and the kindness and the love that you received from others. It's, it's just, it's really beautiful that it takes a village, it takes everybody else to build you. You're not all alone. Um, resilience is not a independent thing. It doesn't come from your own your own strength, your own independence, me, me, me. It comes from we, not I. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I love that's that. how it happened. That's how it happened for me. 
some people, like my husband is resilient. He's just that kind of person. And, you know, I know resilient women too, but, but I'm not, you know, and I was shattered, but I was, it's exactly what you were saying, that the community built me so that I had so much to give because of what they'd given me. And I think that, that, you know, Judaism is very different in, than like the American culture of the independent person who rises by herself and is strong by herself. Because Judaism is all about the community is obliged to help you. And yes. you, you know, you in turn help the community. And I mean, you know, you are alone at, in, the la in the end, you, you yes. are. But it's easier, it's easier to bear because of, of the support they've given you. 100%, 100%. But back to resilience, if someone, let's say, is not a resilient person naturally, does one have to go through a tragedy or a lot of hardships in order to become resilient? Is that the only way to become resilient? No, I think like in Judaism, you know, we always talk about Damzu Batov, like this too is for the good. That if you sort of switch your viewpoint a little bit and and sort of ask, well, why is God sending me this? Or what can I learn from this? Or what can I receive? What, what do I need to receive here? And so that you're not defensive about experience, but rather you're open to it, you're receptive, then it softens you. You know, like resilience, like people think it's being against yeah. and strong and hard. Yeah. But I think it's actually being soft so that you can receive and then find a way that it will be good. You know, I think the whole thing with the COVID, I mean, I'm not talking about people who were sick or people who lost their jobs or people who really suffered because there's been a lot of real terrible hardship in the world. But, you know, people who were in Idud, who were in isolation or yeah. like in Israel, that for a lot of people, they found a way to enjoy it and mm -hmm. to really thrive in it, you know, so that sometimes limitations also be an impetus for growth. And, and I think that's, that's what Judaism is always teaching us, to look for the possibilities. Because Judaism, in its essence, is a religion of hope. Yes. Yes, that's beautiful. Sherry, I learned so much from you. I, your story is truly remarkable. I, I'm just mesmerized by your resilience, your strength, your vulnerability, and your ability to help others. You received kindness and love, and now you are also giving that to, to others. So thank you for that. Truly, thank, thank you. you. Thank I, you. Can you, do you have uh, one last message for the listeners here? Uh, whether they lost someone in their lives or are going through a very, very difficult time in their lives. Do you have a message for them? 
a message. I mean, I think that, you know, part of me wants to say, you know, it will get better. And, but things don't always get better. But just, I think faith is believing that God will help, will help us through whatever we have to go through. And, you know, there's no, there's no magical answer here. There's no cure. But that's I just exactly think... what we needed to hear. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's no magical answer. That's the beauty of it. Sherry, can you tell uh, the listener where they can find you, how they can get in touch with you or purchase any of your books or anything like that? Yes. Yeah, so my, first of all, I have a Facebook page, Sherry Mandel. So that's an easy way to find me and my books. Um, or you can go on kobymandel.org, K-O-B-Y-M-A-N-D-E-L-L.org. And I have a page there and you can also look and see what we're doing in the foundation. And I'm also on Instagram, Sherry Mandel 10. So there's lots of ways to get in touch. Oh, I want to, I should also mention yes. that there's a, there's a play. Yes. On the Blessing of a Broken Heart. And it was postponed. It was supposed to be shown this, it was supposed to be presented in January, but now it's going to be in March. So it will be shown in Jerusalem and in Gush Etzion. So for anybody who lives in Israel and is listening to this, yes. please come to the play. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for everything. You'll be helping many other people. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with others, other people who you think will benefit from this episode. If you want to learn more about what I do, you can check out my Instagram page at coach.kk. Let's connect.